Thank you for joining us on Columbus Day weekend, I'm told. Many children have off. My children do not. <laughs> so, um, but uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, this is the uh, start of a new series for us. We're going to begin working the next few weeks on the topic of marriage. And so a few qualifications are appropriate. But before I start with the qualifications, let me pray for us, and then we'll get going. All right? Father, thanks for the morning. We're grateful for the opportunity to study your word and consider its impact on the relationship of husband and wife. And so direct us and guide us through this time and through our weeks together. We ask God that you would bless it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, there are topics in church life that are difficult and sensitive. Um, and sometimes those difficulty and sensitivities are because not everybody shares in the same condition and location situation of life. So uh, I know that as we look at this, for those who are not married among us, um, whether because of single or widowed, that, um, that this can be particularly difficult. Um, but I want you uh, to, uh, to feel free to, uh, to, you know, omit it if you'd like, but I want to encourage you also to, uh, to come. I think it can be incredibly helpful. Some of the biggest cheerleaders for marriages that I've ever seen in congregations have been single people, okay? Um, but oftentimes the fault of churches is not to address these things at all because it doesn't include everyone, okay? And, uh, and so there is no direct teaching at times, perhaps, uh, except for maybe a sermon here or there. Um, and then third thing I want to say is just that COVID has been hard on people, okay? And uh, I can't get enough counseling space open uh, with, uh, with different counselors that I use for people. They are simply maxed out and full, okay? And uh, so I know it's been difficult. It was not necessarily easy on the Colson family as well. And, uh, and so this is okay space to talk about just marriage and where we need to work and how we can work on that, okay? So that's how we're going to go with this. Um, this is not a negative take on marriage. It's not an overly romantic take on marriage either. Hopefully you'll get a biblically realistic take on you as a sinful human being as your life collides with another sinful human being. And should you expect friction? Violently, yes, up and down, all right? Okay, um, you should expect friction. Um, and uh, so this is, uh, this is where we're going over the next few weeks. And uh, today we're going to start uh, our first lecture, No Good Apart From You. All right, so um, just to begin, uh, years ago when I was first uh, beginning to work in the church after seminary, I was a pastoral intern in Memphis, Tennessee, and the church was large Presbyterian church there. And uh, they had a gym, workout center, uh, uh, attached, to the, uh, attached to the church. It was fairly small and not too many people used it except for myself late in the afternoon and also a few senior citizens who tended to be kind of in the octogenarian status, okay? So they were much older. They all knew that I was the new pastoral intern, so they were incredibly kind and welcoming to me. One of the older men who was working out when I came in and he ended up telling me this joke several times. I think he had forgotten. <laughs> he told it to me. He said, my name is John, and welcome to Memphis. I'm so glad to meet you. This is my wife, Susan. We've been happily married for 19 years. 19 out of 55 ain't so bad, is it? You know, that was... Um, and then he would start laughing, and she would hit him in the arm, and this played out multiple times. Um, and... Uh, 
but obviously it captures something. It can capture something of some people's cynicism about marriage and some of its difficulties. It can also capture something of the realism about marriage uh, just because some of the difficulties. And so that's what we're going to get into. Uh, we're going to talk about what it means to have a good marriage, okay? That is not what it means to have a perfect marriage, okay? Because that doesn't exist. But what it means to have a good marriage and to be willing to work on it and where God plays into all that, because this is not just about technical skills and relational abilities or finding the greatest romantic love of your life, all right? That's not it. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that I just presume is that you always marry the wrong person, okay? You always marry the wrong person because there is no right person, all right? Um, you always marry the wrong person. And so we'll, we'll talk more about that over the weeks to come. Um, but... Uh, as we talk about um, good marriage, what we have to do when we talk about the relationship between husband and wife is we have to recognize um, that to start that conversation, we can't start with just talking about husbands and wives, okay? We can't start with talking about practical skills, about how to resolve conflicts or how to work through in-laws or how to deal with adult children or whatever it may be, that we can't start right there in all that practical stuff. We're going to try to get to some of that. But the most essential thing that we can begin with today is recognize that the relationship of husband and wife only receives its proper definition, its proper goal, and also its proper orientation in relationship to God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the first married couple, were there in relationship with God, and their relationship with one another was broken when they broke their communion and fellowship with God. Okay, so the place that we have to start is talking about ourselves as individual disciples and followers of Jesus because we now live east of Eden, okay? We're outside of that sacred fellowship. We are alienated from God, and we can only kind of limp towards a healthy relationship with our spouse when we're interacting and communing uh, uh, with God through Jesus, okay? And so to begin talking about marriage, we're gonna talk about your relationship with God, really frankly, all right? And so our scripture for this morning is John 2, it's a passage where Jesus is at a wedding, and he's not necessarily ministering about marriage there, but he has something to say about your life with God, and it'll end up saying a lot about your marriage, okay? So let's read from John 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. All right, three things that we're going to talk about, about our relating to God and what we learn here from uh, this uh, very first miracle that Jesus works in Cana of Galilee. All right, first, we learn about the insufficiency of earthly gifts. Verse 3 captures it, okay? We learn there that the wine ran out. Now, if you've ever attended a Jewish wedding ceremony today, it's still somewhat in that ancient custom that these were large festivities, okay? Normally three days worth of a large party, okay, in which your family and extended family and community and village were invited to participate. Jesus was invited to one such event, and it was a big celebration. God's good gifts were celebrated in that. It wasn't just about romantic love. It was also about uh, the stability of the community. It was about the hope and uh, prosperity of the community with the bearing of children. It was about celebrating all that God does in our lives. And so good gifts like wine and friendship and fellowship and family were all celebrated. All right. That was the rich context of what was happening. One of the most embarrassing things that could happen to you in that kind of honor-shame system that operated in the, uh, in the ancient Near East was for your party to come up short and for you to be found lacking. Okay, so this was a major social embarrassment that happens when we learn that the, uh, the wine runs out. But there's also something important to recognize about that little phrase because it does point us in a certain direction. It does capture the truth of human life, doesn't it? Wine is a good gift from God. It's meant to be enjoyed in certain ways under his commands. But the good gifts of God that he gives us in creation, they do always run out, don't they? They do always come up a little short. Earthly joys are always insufficient. Earthly joys always fail. They are gifts, but they're insufficient in themselves. Okay? Augustine tells us that all the good gifts of God inside the creation are vessels. They're vessels that are to take you to a destination. And so they are to bring you to God. That's the purpose of those created gifts that God gives to us. And so whether the gift of wine or the gift of marriage, the gift of a child, the gift of a friendship, whatever it may be, those things are all vessels that are to deliver you to a destination. But oftentimes, in our own disordered loves, in the ways that our human hearts have been corrupted by sin, what we do is we make those vessels destinations themselves, okay? And so this is what the human heart does kind of in our idolatry. So what does this exactly mean for your marriage? It means that your spouse, if you have one, is a gift. But it also means that your spouse is an insufficient gift, Okay? Your spouse is not what you primarily need in life. Your spouse, no matter how wonderful, will fail you. Your spouse, despite Jerry Maguire, will not complete you. Okay? If you remember that movie, you complete me. And everybody cries and it's so wonderful. And you, know, and, and you can watch this over and over all day on Hallmark. Um, <laughs> And uh, where we have this very romanticized notion of love that doesn't necessarily help us um, because your spouse will not complete you. And so the question is why? And it's because they're not designed to do so. Okay? 
God did not create a spouse in order to fill all of that need. Two were given to be one. We are to complement one another. There's wonderful things that happen inside the symmetry of a marriage. It's much like a dance where you have a lead partner and you have a, uh, another partner who responds and the grace and beauty is uh, on display in ways in that partner responding. It's a wonderful dance that mirrors one another. But a spouse is never a substitute for God. Okay? And when we talk about the foundation of a Christian marriage, that line that, I, that we gave for the title here, no good apart from you, that's not talking about apart from your spouse. No good apart from God. Okay? This is a quotation from Psalm 16. All right? Perhaps one of Augustine's favorite. That we have no good apart from God. Um, and so that's critical for us to understand. So when we put that expectation and pressure on our marriage, that our spouse is going to complete us, all right? And so when we bring that expectation and that pressure, we'll, we will build a home on a foundation of discontentment and exasperation and frustration, okay? That's exactly what you will construct when you put that pressure on it. And so a discontented home no matter how well put together it may appear, no matter how well kept you may have it, how well it may be presented, that will be a home that begins to fall apart, okay? Because you're putting a weight on it that it can't sustain. It's gonna be two things, more or less, that happen here. First, we become envious of others, comparing our spouse to someone else, all right? This is what happens when you're looking to your spouse to complete you. Because they can't fit the bill, because they can't do it, what you're going to begin to do is look outward into the world and you're going to become envious of those things that you see and you're going to become running catalogs through your mind about the things that your spouse doesn't do well enough. So criticism begins to ramp up and as criticism ramps up, what declines? Gratitude. And so the person we once love, they become an annoyance, they become an inconvenience, they become an obstacle, or perhaps they just become a means to our existence and we just kind of negotiate a truce. Second thing that's going to happen in that situation is we go out into the world hungry, looking to other things to fill us for what's absent, okay? And so it may be kids, it may be a home, it may be our appearance, it may be a friendship, it may be a career, or it may be someone else's spouse. That happens too. And so whatever it is, since we started seeking fulfillment in the wrong place, because we were already looking to a spouse to provide us with a fulfillment that they could never provide, when we find that that's lacking, we are already down the wrong road. And so it's no surprise when someone's already down the wrong road, keeps going down that wrong road, okay? It's the same disease. It just takes on a different manifestation. So we continue down that wrong path, and we try to find the goods that we want. We try to find our sufficiency in another earthly gift, okay? And unfortunately, do we ever get satisfied? No, it's cotton candy. You know, it just doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give you the meal that you're really looking for. And uh, so this is what it means for the wine to run out. Earthly joys are insufficient. They can never fully deliver. They can never fully meet all your needs. 
all right? And so, guys, we have to recognize that God is our one good, that he is our sufficiency, and for a husband and wife to truly build together, what we must be doing is relating to that God, okay? It is as we both pursue him and as we follow in our relationship together under him, recognizing that he, is the de- he provides the definition of marriage, that he directs its goal, that he also orients that marriage. It's at that place when we're both following after God that we begin to live together successfully as two people who share one life together, all right? So that's the first point. Second, we learn about what God wants from us, okay? In this following relationship, we learn here in John 2 what God wants. Now, as Protestants, we don't talk a whole lot about Mary, and uh, my mentor, Tim Russell, uh, used to always poke and laugh because he grew up around a lot of Roman Catholics. And uh, they would tell him about how he didn't, um, he didn't think about Mary enough. And he said, I don't talk bad about Jesus' mama because I don't expect you to talk bad about my mama. So we don't want to talk about bad about Jesus' mama. And especially when she's given to us in Scripture as an example, we don't necessarily have to shy away from it just because some other people have done weird stuff with her, all right? Um, but in this passage... Mary does reveal something to us about what it means to follow Jesus. I want you to note this uh, pretty carefully uh, as to how the interaction happens. But the wine ran out, and who does Mary go to? She goes to Jesus, okay? She perceives that something is about to happen. She knew something about who he was, okay? And Jesus responds to her kind of curtly. He's saying his hour has not yet come. You're going to find that word, and we'll see it in a moment uh, when we turn to John 12 later on. But he's just saying that his public hour has not arrived. Um, He is waiting for direction from God. It then becomes clear to him, obviously, that that hour was now kicking off. Something was, uh, was now in the works. But Mary tells the servants then, what does she say? Do whatever he tells you. It's a great line. This is not a moralistic invitation to salvation. She's saying, do whatever he tells you. She's instructing the servants, and she's saying something to us as well. This is what God wants from us, is this kind of simple trust to do whatever he tells you because Jesus is the one who has the power to fix all of these situations, that Jesus is the one who can answer the situation when the wine runs out. Okay? She knows and perceives that by faith, and she's inviting us to do the same, okay? to do whatever he tells you. So when the wine runs out, we are to go to Jesus. We are to tend to what he says. We're to listen to him carefully, and we're to trust him. But we also don't just learn from Mary here. Okay? There's another series of commands that take place, because what we also, who we also learn from are the servants, Now, in verses 7 through 8, you find these commands. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Three commands, fill, draw, and take. What did the servants do? They filled it, (laughs) they drew it, and they took it. Okay, they listened. Okay. And this is the kind of simple trusting obedience that's being put on display before us. And it's an obedience that comes from faith. Okay? Mary instructs the servants to do what he tells you to do because she believes, she perceives 
who Jesus is. And then the servants, they answer Jesus' commands. And so they fill, they draw, and they take. And this is the posture of faith that's being represented to us here in the story. Jesus doesn't require elaborate rituals and deeds, but rather just simple trust to believe him and to follow him. And when we do simple things like trustingly obey, this is when Jesus does saving things, okay? This is how God creates salvation on our behalf is when we just look to him in faith, all right? And this is what it means to rightly relate to God. This is what he wants from us. And if you really want to talk about having a healthy marriage that's really good, then you have to have this equation built in where you're both attending to what Jesus says and you're both wanting to listen and you're wanting to follow. I know it's really simple. I know you could hear that perhaps upstairs in the youth room, but we can make marriage so much about technicalities and we can make it about skills. And friends, we need to keep it really simple because it comes down to our, do we live in this posture of being willing to listen to Jesus and follow him? Is that what is orienting our life as husband or as wife, as spouse? And is this directing us? And then as we're both directed in that way, we'll find ourselves living together in peace and harmony, okay? So we learn what God wants from us. Now the final thing, we also see very clearly what God does for us. And this has significant impact on life of husband and wife together. Now, the story is well known. There were these six jars used for purification. This comes out of Leviticus 11. It was part of the Mosaic economy where the people of Israel were to, to wash and to cleanse themselves. And obviously, that water that fills those very large jars, okay, lots and lots of gallons, 150 gallons worth. You can't accuse Jesus of being a prude. Uh, 150 gallons worth of water turned into wine, all right? And so this rich connection between wine and the blood of Jesus is obviously well known, and especially as you look at, uh, at the Lord's table, which we're gonna be celebrating today. So it's not hard to discern the purpose of this miracle about what's happening here. The wine is symbolic of Jesus's sacrificial blood. Jesus comes in fulfillment of all of those mosaic signs and all of those mosaic promises. All those purification rites, they were all pointing to one place. They were pointing to Jesus. And so he fulfills all of that old sacrificial system, and he's replacing it with his once and for all offering of himself. All right? And so Jesus tells us that this miracle was a manifestation of his glory. Or John tells us that this was a manifestation of Jesus' glory. Look in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, it's important to ask, how exactly does this miracle manifest the glory of Jesus? It points to some later developments in the Gospel of John. If you were around a few years ago, we preached through this and, and chased a lot of this stuff. It's really wonderful and beautiful. John's Gospel is full of rich artistry. Um, using words and subtle plays. And so if you turn to chapter 12, if you have your Bible available, in verse 27 down through verse 36, there's an important conversation that takes place. 
Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Notice the word hour coming up. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So the idea of glory is happening. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This idea of lifting up is connected to glory and exaltation. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. All right, a couple important things going on there. Jesus says he's going to be exalted. How are we to interpret that exaltation and that glory? How does John interpret it? Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. When he talks about being lifted up and when he talks about being exalted, is he talking about his resurrection? No. He's talking about what kind of death he was going to die. You can chase these references in, uh, in the book of Isaiah, and you can also look at John and how he uses these. And it's incredible because Jesus' glory is his crucifixion. That's his enthronement in the Gospel of John where he is crucified in order to take our sin and our shame. And this is what he does for us. And this miracle is playing it out for us, pointing that the purification that comes through the blood of Jesus is exactly what we need. So we learn that the glory of Jesus is being lifted up from the earth, but this lifting up is not a reference to his resurrection, it's a, re it's a reference to his crucifixion. And so his exaltation is to come and to cancel out your sin and my sin. And this is what God does for you. He does it uniquely for you. And there is nothing quite like a marriage to bring out your sin and your shame and your failure. I remember telling Melissa after a year of marriage that I felt like an upgraded from a black and white television to a color one that I now saw life in full color. I saw myself in new ways. I saw human beings in new ways. In fact, it wasn't just color, it was like HD, you know? I understood more about myself than I ever wanted to. Okay? And so it highlighted some of that shame and some of those shortcomings and some of that sin that I'd never quite seen before. And it is when we feel the weight of our failings that this glory of Jesus, of him being lifted up, becomes particularly important, and it becomes a particular source of hope. It's in the midst of all of that failing that we need to see the glory of the Son of God and know that he is the one who bears all that sin and all of that shame. He suffered for you. He takes your judgment on your behalf, and he does so that you can walk free from that sense of sin and shame, and also that you can turn from yourself. two important applications to think about for your marriage. We'll, we'll pursue this in weeks ahead. But why is it so significant to have this concept of forgiveness, of understanding how we rightly relate to God? Why is it so, forgive, why is it so important to have this at the basis of your marriage? First thing, without this forgiveness, you will not rise from your failures. If this forgiveness is not really impressed and written on your heart, 
if you don't really believe it, if forgiveness is just kind of a notion that you think is nice, you will never have the courage to face your failures in front of your spouse. And when those failures are pointed out, you will tend to just continue to sit in them. Okay? It takes a strong and robust notion of forgiveness that can only come from God, that he is the only one who can wipe out our sins, our sins against our spouses in particular, that he's the only one that can do that. And when we know that he has that unique power and he has accomplished that for us in Jesus, that becomes the basis of being able to step into real change in life in your marriage, okay? Without it, you're just gonna to continue to kind of hang out in Egypt, talk about how the straw, there's not enough straw and there's too many bricks and it's just difficult, okay? But when we really experience that liberating power of forgiveness, it allows us to rise in front of our spouse where our, some of our greatest failings take place. Hear that? The greatest failings I hear that people talk with, about with me are, take place inside of their homes, okay? The secrets are not norm, known in public generally. Greatest failings take place right there. And so right there in front of your spouse is where your failings take place. And you'll never rise out of that failing unless you really know God forgives you, all right? And so you must believe that yourself. And then also you must believe it for your spouse. And so rather than your spouse's critic, you have to take up the challenge of becoming your spouse's cheerleader, okay? Coach and encourager, okay? To believe and to trust that God takes away all the sin, that God takes away all the shame. And so rather being that source of condemnation, we want to be that source of encouragement that points each other to Jesus, all right? Forgiveness is necessary for that reason. Now, the second reason that we need forgiveness because oftentimes we don't see our need for it, <laughs> all right? And when we don't see our need for it, it's really difficult to participate in a marriage. Two can't become one when only one is considered to be the problem, all right? And this, despite how many times it's been said, is still the most persistent problem that I see. I will oftentimes hear people say, well, I've got my sins and stuff, and then, Here's what we really need to talk about over here, okay? Uh, one of my mentors, I was asking him early on, I was just, uh, I was in seminary and uh, our church had done a survey about the state of the marriages in the church and I learned never to do it. Um, after hearing the re <laughs> results of the survey, he was so depressed. <laughs> and, uh, uh, all the men lied and all the women were really honest. It was, it was fascinating, you know, but <laughs> so he was then doing tons of marriage counseling and he bought a coffee cup, all right? And he would bring husband and wife in for the counseling session. And they would sit opposite one another on either side of the coffee cup. And uh, he would say, you're looking at the same coffee cup. I want you to describe what you see on that cup. And I want you to describe what you see on that cup. Now, there were different pictures, okay? And so uh, the first spouse would go and describe what they see on the cup. And so then he would, he would look at the other one and say, now, you're looking at the same cup and got that description, how do you respond to that? Do you think there's any truth as to what was just said to you? And they would say, well, I'm, I suppose she's describing what she saw, okay? Then he would turn the tables, okay? And he says, look, until you're both willing to do this and to trust 
that that description is true, that there is something true in what's being described. Until you can apply that same curiosity to your marriage, we're not going to make any headway. Okay? And guys, that's the truth for all of us. It doesn't mean that every critique that comes from our spouse is gospel truth, but it means that we have to work really hard to get down to the kernel of it, okay? And it means that we need to be really willing to attend to and listen. Only a forgiven person will have the boldness and the courage and the curiosity to step into all that, okay? Because you're not scared and you don't have to be defensive. You don't have a whole lot to hide, okay? So you you can kind of do away with the pride and defensiveness. But many people just never get there. Okay? And this is where the gospel gets extremely practical. Okay? That that robust notion of forgiveness is the thing that allows you to break down your defensiveness. Okay? And it breaks into your self-awareness and it makes you hyper self-aware. Okay? Where you begin to understand your contribution to situations and what is not helpful at all about what you bring to the equation. And we have to be willing to do that well, we will never really participate in two becoming one. It'll just be a rather uh, difficult stalemate. So when we think our spouse is the problem, that yes, we married the wrong person, and that we really think that. I married the wrong person. If I'd married the right person, I wouldn't be dealing with these things. What we're failing to do is take up the invitation that God has for us to our sanctification. So when we're defensive and proud and unwilling to examine ourselves, it's a non-starter for a healthy marriage. And so for those of you who are married, take the invitation. Those hard places where you've got a lot of tension in your marriage, God is at work doing something. I can't tell you exactly what he's at and what he's going after, without knowing more of the circumstances, but he is doing something right in that place, okay? And oftentimes we allow that to become rather than a source of growth in our relationship with God and a source of growth in our marriage, what do we do? We ignore it. We allow it to become a source of further alienation that drives us apart from one another. It becomes a source of contention, you know? And over the years, that just kind of builds up. And you become like a a big old sailing vessel with a bunch of barnacles on the bottom of it. And eventually you you will not pass through the inlet. You will beach and shipwreck, okay? And uh, and so it's important that, uh, that you be willing to address these things. Two honest brokers coming. Two honest sinners coming to the table together being willing to look at it, to acknowledge their contribution, to confess their parts, to be able to say hard things to one another, and to do so in love. It's the unique gift of the gospel, okay? And what's going on here in John 2 with the, the miracle here and the symbolism inside of it, signifying the the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus. This is what you need for a healthy marriage. You need that forgiveness. You need that simple trusting obedience. Do whatever he says, okay? Attend to him, listen to him, trust him, okay? And then also just recognize that your marriage is never going to be enough, okay? 
That's not what God created it for. And when you get the right expectations for it, and you recognize that it is a gift and a good gift and one that's to be enjoyed under God and in relationship with God, it's at that point that the expectation is set right and actually becomes a delight, something that you can receive in gratitude and enjoy. Watch it mature and watch it grow. Watch it age with beauty. And that's the goal, okay? The goal is good, healthy marriage, all right? So this is where we're going to go over the next weeks. This is just a start. There's a whole lot to say about it. And, uh, and I'm not an expert. Um, I'm not going to Dr. Phil you, okay? And uh, we're, gonna, uh, we're not just going to talk about superficialities about it, um, but also recognize that there's limits. If you do get to the end of some of these talks and go, you know, we, we really are in trouble, okay? Um, that happens sometimes. And so I just want to go ahead and say, that's okay. okay. One of the biggest issues that people deal with uh, inside of their marriages is just not wanting any kind of third party in the conversation. It just feels too embarrassing. Okay? We've already got enough failure here between us, and so we really don't want somebody else in the goodies. Okay? Um, one of the reasons that we do premarital counseling for couples, for young couples, is just to go ahead and introduce the idea of a third party, okay? I have been in some of the most awkward situations you can imagine, okay? talking with young couples about their future married life together. And when, I, when the awkwardness reaches a high point, I always just say, hey guys, I just want you to recognize something. This conversation we're having is really awkward. I know it's awkward for you because it's awkward for me. And my concern is not for my awkwardness right now. My concern is ultimately for you in the future because you're going to hit situations where you need a third party, where you need an outside broker in conversation with you about your marriage. Okay? I'm trying to break that barrier down for you right now. And so, guys, it's okay. And if you find yourself in a place where you need help, I am happy to help and get you directed to the right people. Okay? We have lots of good people uh, that we can point you to. It is a little bit difficult to get in right now. Uh, I also uh, spend time with people and helping them work on these things. I normally can do about three or four meetings, and I kind of get to the end of what I got to, to offer you from a biblical perspective. And I'm going to be the first person to tell you, hey, I'm at the uh, kind of end of the road for me as to what I can do here for you. Okay? Um, but, uh, and then we can get you directed to good places. Okay? And uh, so we're happy to help. We want to be in service of that because marriage is God's good gift, okay? And we want it to be healthy for you. Um, and so uh, we'd be happy to, to help you towards that end. So just hold that in mind as we go through these weeks and, um, and we'll, uh, we'll continue on. But let me pray for us and we're going to take a break. Father, thanks for the morning, for the chance to introduce this topic and to talk about what it means to rightly relate to you and what it means to rightly relate to our spouses. Help us to recognize the good gift of marriage, to know that it's not sufficient for all of our needs and that we need to turn away from that. And then help us to recognize great forgiveness and the simple trust that you call us to respond to you in. And so direct us in that way. And on that foundation, grant us to build healthy and good and thriving marriages. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.